This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Marks here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. I'm joined today by two of my colleagues, Lee Chen Ren and Jeff Winninger. We're having a special in-depth episode of what's happening uh, around the world. We have Professor Jeremy Siegel, Senior Economist for Wisdom Tree, also kicking us off. Please note, Jeff, Lee Chen, and I are registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Professor, as we go into uh, the, the, uh, the weekend here, how are you thinking about the markets? I think markets are hitting all-time highs. Uh, our favorite indicator, uh, the um, uh, uh, jobless claims, weekly jobless claims, fell under 200,000, tickling a 60-year low. Wow, that's strength. Uh, now, we did get a little bit of weakness, some of the manufacturing indexes, basically New York, uh, but housing uh, was okay. Uh, retail sales were okay. The control group was strong um, for December. It looks like um, uh, the fourth quarter GDP, which I think is reported uh, advanced notice next week, is going to be 2% or maybe even a, a tenth or two higher. And I think we're going into uh, January with a good momentum. Um, we... Um, We'll talk a little bit about the interest rates. Yes, there has been a movement upward on interest rates, certainly on the 10-year, uh, 10 to 15 basis points because of the strength of the economy, uh, because some of the Fed officials, which, by the way, will very soon be entering a quiet period uh, before the meeting, have uh, talked about some caution about uh, how fast they will lower rates. Remember, it is our position that uh, we don't need lower rates for the stock market to go higher uh, as long as the business activity is strong. And uh, that is certainly uh, uh, what we're seeing um, at the present time. Of course, there there will be no move in uh, January. There will be no dot plot in that January 31st meeting, but there will be, of course, uh, the press conference that follows. Uh, I imagine, depending on the data that comes through, that he will be cautious not promising at all cuts in March, given the strength we said it had in the data. What's interesting about the stock market is that uh, despite the rise in yields, which usually pressures the tech stocks um, and the growth stocks relative to the value stocks, we've actually seen a tremendous surge of those growth stocks that actually have wiped out uh, a bit of the advantage that the value stocks uh, and the small stocks had gained late last year and very early this year. Um, this is really quite a turnaround when interest rates go up and the tech goes up relative to value amid strong economic growth. One of the things I uh, attribute that to, I mean, is, is the strength in the chip industry, particularly uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, very strong. I think this excites the um, uh, investors in AI uh, again, uh, and, uh, you know, what better to go into but virtually every tech stock, um, every mega uh, uh, tech stock, Magnificent Seven, if you're uh, feeling that, that uh, firms are, are really trying to move ahead on the AI basis. So I think that that has wiped out the usual depressive effect of those uh, higher interest rates um, uh, that uh, we see. But at this particular thing, at this particular rate, all looks well. I don't see any really, in, you know, a flare-up of inflationary problems. Uh, you know, Mideast is always a problem. The Red Sea is a problem. But broad, broad commodity indexes are very well behaved, if not in a downtrend. So um, I think it's more of a good thing for the stock market. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly I'm not surprised that the new highs that um, uh, uh, that we are seeing in the in the broad based indices, it's it's going to be interesting. You, you're seeing more of that year of efficiency. You know, Google is starting to announce some layoffs, like Meta announced. They're, they're leveraging some of those AI technologies. So I think it'll be interesting how they react to that. Small caps have had a tough start to the year, um, 
but uh, I think you know our view has been that there can get broader participation this year. So we'll see how the economic strength holds up with all that. In, in thirty seconds, China can't improve. China keeps being bad. We're going to talk a lot about that today. Any quick comments on what you see in that in that market? I, I think uh, you know she is always going to cast a, a doubt on on China until he turns stock friendly and tech friendly uh, and eases concerns about uh, moving militarily on Taiwan. Uh, there's always going to be caution in that area. Okay, and we're going to talk a lot about that with Lee Chen and Jeff on our show today. Uh, we have a sort of special in-depth episode on all the dynamics of these international markets. What happened in Taiwan? We're going to get Lee Chen's view on all of that. Professor, thank you for kicking us off to start the show. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much. We're going to now take a very short break, but you're going to be back on Behind the Markets with Jeff and Lee Chen. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio. Welcome back to a special edition of Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Ward School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. I'm joined by two of my colleagues. We're going to have a deep dive across the world. What's happening? Uh, we've got some major geopolitical issues. Uh, we're going to talk about all of them. I have Li Chen Ren, who's director of Modern Alpha, does a lot of work on China, and China is very much topical, top of mind for some of the recent elections in Taiwan. We're going to get her take on what's happening there in the markets. We also have Jeff Winnegar, who's head of equity strategy, and Jeff just hosted an epic Twitter Spaces event this week, three hours. We're talking a lot about shipping, the conflict in the Middle East, what's happening there. So, Jeff, fresh off that, I'm going to get your view of all the stuff that, that happened there. A lot of interesting experts that you were talking to for three hours. So we'll come back to you. Um, thank you both for joining me here on this, again, special, special episode. Li Chen, let's start with you because China is so interesting. I mean, I, I look at all the commentary people are getting. And, you know, I was trained under Professor Siegel, so trained in the value mindset. And I look at some of these Chinese tech companies, I say, wow, these are cheap stocks. They're like the ultimate value stocks. Um, but are they a value trap? And that like they're cheap for a very good reason. And that, you know, when people say it's uninvestable, that's what's causing these valuations. But people are moving away. There's fear of the election. We'll talk about both sides. But uh, the U.S. side, China side, where it's going, but the current dynamics. Taiwan is a big part of it. What's your thoughts on what just happened? Thank you, Jeremy. Um, again, I think uh, valuation. We got so many questions on on it, and how do you evaluate a, a country like China, right? Which was so different politically, yet emerging market, yet second largest economy. So I think we'll go in deeper in on that front, uh, but talk a little bit on Taiwan election, which uh, just happened uh, January 13th, uh, Saturday. The pro-independence party um, or the current administration won with about 40% of votes. Uh, the two opposition party, uh, the traditional KMT party, which is much more pro-engagement with mainland, and the third party, which doesn't take very strong positions, uh, but much more welfare issues like inequality, uh, they they got about 26% of the vote. And then um, the traditional party got about 34% of the vote. I think overall, I myself uh, underestimated how many people voted for the third party, you know, knowing that they, they're unlikely to win, but this a lot of Taiwanese people voted for it. And that made the final legislature, which was also in the um, the party that was much more pro-independence, uh, they lost the majority. So now nobody has a majority in the legislature and the president has 40% of the um, mandate. So I think um, ultimately the military conflict is risk is still very low. But I think we have to admit the risk of conflict, of something going uh, awire, which is much less, you know, not military direct conflict, but but some kind of uh, small level conflicts. The risk of that definitely has increased. But I, I think the military conflict is still low. That's why probably the market has not reacted much uh, right after the independence. But I think people are going to assess, you know, for mainland and, and Taiwan and, and broadly for emerging markets. 
we'll talk about what the U.S. elections mean for both for the, for the China relations, but they also had a lot of China data this week. Some of the the drops in China's markets this week was tied to the data, although um, former President Trump likes to say that he won the Iowa caucus by so much that it, it dropped because of his chances of going getting reelected um, went up. I, I don't know. What, what's your thought on what you saw this week, the reaction to the data? Some people are saying if the data is so bad, they're going to have to stimulate. What's your sense on the economy and, and the stimulation potential? Um, again, um... I wrote a blog last year and says the stimul the possibility of stimulation in China is low. I think people have. To, uh, I don't want to, you know, I don't feel good being proven right on this issue. But when you look at in China, the two blogs that I wrote, really, I still think is a baseline. One is China's uh, central bank generally do not stimulate unless it's really, really bad. And the secondly, uh, this uh, China generally right now do not want to do stimulus. It wants to upgrade the technology front because it's in direct competition with the U.S. So I think that framework is still right, even though the, the government will do some stimulus physically and some easing monetary. Um, but I I don't think the, the, the things, the kind of things, you know, Americans are used to in the stimulus is nowhere in the cards. Uh, and, and also, even though China is... Um, News media is very censored. President Trump's comment actually was uh, pretty much viral in China as well. <laughs> Just so um, uh, you know that uh, many Chinese also got that comment. Again, you know, two things happening at the same time. Uh, all three things, it's hard to tell which one. But I do think um, the, the immediate uh, uh, negative response was really there were a th slew of economic numbers uh, got released uh, um those numbers actually look very good and, you know, beat the GDP, you know, 5.2%. But the thing is, people are not buying it. That is why the, the, the negative sentiment. So most of in China, for people who are not familiar with China, in China, the, uh, one of the biggest difference between U U.S. and China is that if you look at the per capita disposable income of a typical American, that's about, you know, 85% of the GDP because you got a lot of you know, transfer money from back from the government. In China, it's about 45%. So per, per capita GDP can be high, but a typical person do not get that much because the government do a lot of um, tax and investment. So that's really one significant difference between US and China. And the Statistical Bureau is saying last year, the income growth was close to five to 6%. And for typical Chinese, at least, you talk to many Chinese that, as I did over the summer, um, last year, you know, many, many people are just not buying that the income growth was that high. So that is really, I think, the key negative sentiment. Like, But obviously, President uh, Trump's wing in, in Iowa was not lost in China as well. Well, I think the other interesting news item, and then I'm going to pull Jeff in here, was the Baidu, which is one of the, the key leaders in AI, um, they mark themselves as a you know one of the, the the true AI companies. They also got hit heavy on the week, and there was some stories saying that their tech and their AI sort of chatbot was had some connection to the military and some of the other censoring things. Which you know, there's some sense of well, is any company not involved in that transfer of of knowledge between civilians and military? That's one of the fears about China, and everybody can at risk of running off of the U.S. sanction list, right? So some of the companies got blocked in many different ways. Some got blocked from being invested in, some got blocked from exporting. There's all sorts of political questions on that. And AI is one of the hot topics. Semiconductors are one of the hot topics. Um, is What's your view on that issue? Is Was Baidu hit by that? Was that something more on just the economy? And, and your sense of these sanctions and other potential risks? Um, it's amazing on that issue is actually this uh, news came from the Chinese side. There was a academic article and most what it talked about is hypothetical. So if you actually read that article, it's a, uh, it's hard to say that there was this, you know, it's an open academic article. It's not some, 
you know, secret news that got released or it's you know, or it's released by the U.S. But and and the Hong Kong market didn't really responded that much. It was when the when then you know the U.S. market uh, responded. So again, this is where when it comes to Chinese companies, what is the risk, right? Like people are assessing what is the valuation for for these companies will be because it's in direct competition with the U.S. and U.S. can sanction a Chinese company. And the Chinese company can lose revenue thirty five percent, like Huawei. Yeah, even though it doesn't have to be hardcore evidence for the U.S. to, you know, to to make a to make a argument. So I think that is is a challenge for a lot of um, Chinese companies right now. Chef, as you as you think about all that we've talked about so far, from your global equity point of view, as you think about this opportunity, value value trap. How do you weigh pros and cons here when thinking about other opportunities around the world. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the rising themes that you will hear frequently, and it's, it's almost difficult to get away from it, is, is that whether whether or not we are in this era of conflict. And, you know, if you look at some of these major indexes for mainland Chinese equities, you're at some of the lowest multiples, a 10 handle on a price earnings ratio for some of these indexes. In that country, that would be about half of what you have for the S&P 500. And because we have this cloud over over Taiwan and kind of needed to get through that election. Remember, that election was just this past weekend. So that's fresh, fresh news. But in the background or, well, I don't even know if it's in the background. Maybe it's just not fully appreciated just yet. As you do also have this risk here, um, tensions with North and South Korea are I don't know if we want to say, Jeremy, boiling. Do we want to say boiling with with that situation? Essentially, there had been this discussion for the last three quarters of a, of a century where the, the end goal had been to ultimately, in some point in time, reunify and embrace and, and have the North and South Koreans view each other as, as, as brothers. But and now we've got this new rhetoric out of North Korea here saying, no, essentially the South Koreans are a hostile force with respect to us. We do not want to reunify. And of course, North Korea has been um, sending missiles into some of these Middle Eastern conflicts. So it's all interrelated. And I think that, that might be a little bit of a of a cloud um, regionally. It's it's intriguing because. Well, it's I don't even know if intriguing is the best word, more like fascinating to, to see Chinese equities just dying on the vine, and it's been a couple of years now, and it's been every bit of three years for the Chinese property bubble at this juncture. So that's a well-known quantity, which is on net bullish. It's bullish that we all know that there's nothing left to reveal with regard to the disaster that is the Chinese property bubble unwind. But one of the things that's fascinating about all this is China won't stop going down it's down inside these early couple of weeks of 2024. And at the same time, right next door, Japanese equities want to try to make new highs. The the buzz, one of the things that I think might be almost like a um, kind of like when Buffett got all the attention towards Japanese equities by just splashing the, the front page of the newspapers by buying up the trading houses. I wonder if we won't get something like new attention on Japan this year if the Nikkei does decide to take out those 1989 highs. Remember, that was December 29th, 1989. Some of the other Japanese indexes have already threatened the 1989, 1990 highs, but the Nikkei right now wants to do it. I don't know, Jeremy, maybe in the first or second quarter, maybe that gets some attention there. And then also, if it's this era of war where got North Korean saber rattling, for example, and uh, you got the whole situation with, with Israel and Hamas, the situation with Russia, Ukraine. Meantime, down there in the south of Asia, Indian equities as well, just wanting to continue to make new highs. And one of the things that was briefly touched on um, w- between the three of us here, um, and it's certainly what everybody is talking about in these markets is that the overwhelming bulk of humanity will be voting for someone this year. This is the year of elections. <laughs> and 
Um, you know, we we being Americans, we want to focus on that Iowa caucus, which which Trump took by, I think, 31 percentage points. But the Brits are going to the polls this year. Modi is supposed to be, we think, we hypothesize a slam dunk to win in India. That is the most populous nation on planet Earth. And of course, the just witnessed Taiwanese elections and many, many more. It's something like 70 or 80 countries, I think, are going to vote this year. So it's going to be a hyper focus on a lot of this geopolitical strategy and rightfully so. You know, you do see money moving um, in terms of the countries, India and Japan. Last year took in a lot of money. They continue to start the year taking in net flows. And I think some of that is looking at China and sort of reallocating away from China. So there's been sort of this not pure divestment campaign, but people are lowering their risk um, and, and moving it around. And, and I think India and Japan are benefiting. They're also, you know, just being allies in, in different ways. I mean, Japan has a global growth profile, a cheap, you know, depending on what basket, our, our index for, for Japan is 12 times earnings. So it's it's a it's like a value tilt on global growth. And I mean, buy China because it's a value tilt and you get the whole market at 10 PE um, or 12 PE, but you got so much different risk, you know, that when I think what Russia showed people is, you know, US policy could make, you know, where we made people who owned EM, it's, it's not like we were hurting Russians, but we, ho- we hurt US investors in Russian stocks by giving them zero value. We zeroed them out. And not because the companies were actually were zero. It's just because it was a political statement by the U.S. and Europe to say we're going to hurt investors into Russia, which is to me right. it was like a silly, silly thing for to do. Um, you know, yeah. and, 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 and people look at China and say that's the risk. That I think that's the so-called weaponized commerce, right? And in China, I think again. Um, Japan and uh, uh, India definitely have benefited. On the other hand, that's also a kind of signal to say that the major uh, conflict in in China and the U.S. is is still very low risk. Because if there is a major conflict, Japan really cannot be sitting out there. You know, it is uh, one of the U.S. allies. It will be if U.S. Is, has ground troops there. Japan, you know, it's the base, so it's all the game. So I think. On that front, um, it, it's definitely, I think mostly for China, regardless whether China going equity going up or down, I think many um, uh, investors, and we've talked this for the last two years, is going to have to think about China as an independent um, asset class versus uh, uh, emerging market, the other emerging market, because the way the valuation, how do you think about, you know, evaluate, evaluate a, a country like China is going to be different from other countries. So I think that having China exposure in different, um, you know, knowing how much you have China exposure in your portfolio um, across different strategies, that's, that's you know, what we are thinking. We have been thinking in the last few years. And Jeff, you know, uh, we've talked so many times as well. About, well, with respect to just this this creation of this thing that we call emerging markets, which has been the phraseology of our industry since the three of us were small children, um, whereby in the early 1980s, they were all emerging. And now you have a bunch of them that have emerged. South Korea is a great example of one that emerged long ago. Poland emerged. Israel. Israel is essentially a, a, a key center for tech. And then you have sometimes they submerge when Greece submerged many, many years ago. At this point, that was over 10 years ago. And now we have this situation where we have all these various economic systems, various cultures. We lump them all together. We call them emerging markets. We give them one line item in the portfolio and we say, here, have at it. And you end up at any given time, depending on the fund, maybe 50 or 60 percent China plus Taiwan just in time for China to have the last couple of years just dying on the vine. And at this point, um, India has risen up in the pecking order. That is a country that is now, what, 17, what is it, Jeremy? It's like 17% of MSCI emerging is India at this point because of just the face. Yes, that's about, depends on which one, it's about 17 or 20% uh, yeah. for India. Yeah, and China right now, actually, weight is barely 21, 22%, you know, after the, 
ultimately, I, I really think for China's uh, equity valuation, there's really two factors. One is China's own domestic. The second is the U.S.-China relationship. Um, even on Taiwan, ultimately, I know uh, to say this, you know, many people will, will feel a little bit offended, but uh, ultimately, U.S. and China holds you know, significant cards over over the future of Taiwan. When you think about when when China was about called roughly half of these indexes, it does make you scratch your head and think a little bit about when MSCI EFA, which is the developed market index, was about half Japan. Going back to what we were just talking about with the 1989 situation when Japan could do no wrong. And then through the years, that just has been this grinding drip and drift down for Japanese equities as a proportion of total developed markets down to, help me guys, 17-ish percent of MSCI EFA, give or take. I know Jeremy probably knows the number specifically. And that's one of those things where there is this question mark, and I don't know any better than the next person, but will China go down that path of a debt deflation on account of its property bubble? just like the Japanese did. Very different dynamics. The Japanese were already wealthy when that happened. The Chinese are, by and large, not. But one of the things that could be at least bullish, I, I feel like it's underestimated. I feel like Li Shen's on the other side of this from me. Does the PBOC not give us a surprise easing this year? I mean, it sounded like you were saying no. They're, it they're will. Not. It will give us easing. Okay. But I think... Uh, for two things. One is right now China does not want to move, uh, want to take some time and see how U.S. rates moves. Because if U.S. rates, you know, continues stay there and then China moves down, then you increase the gap between the U.S.-China uh, interest rate gap. Right now, U.S. rate is so much higher than than China. Uh, China is about, you know, 2.2%, depends on which rate you, you use. The U.S. is about 5.5%. So it will put pressure on on the currency. It's uh, China uh, actually one uh, one of the goal is to to achieve somewhat uh, stable currency. So it is unlike U.S., which has the you know reserve currency. When you have the reserve currency, you can you have complete independence of monetary policy. Any other country, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're emerging market or 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 uh, um, market, you don't have that uh, that luxury. So that's one factor. Second factor is the economy is you know weak, so uh, PBOC is expected to um, to 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 reduce. But again, it usually does it if it's really bad, and the economic data is is bad. But it's it's not like really, really bad. So it didn't feel the negative sentiment is really what's driving it. Like, for example, the economic number, it got released uh, last night. They mostly beat expectations, but the sentiment was very negative because people feel that, you know, we are, you know, the income is not growing at 5% when the government says 5%. So maybe it's, you know, growing at 2% or, or, or barely there, right? So it's not a significant negative growth. So for the PBOC, it will ease, but it's it's definitely not uh, going to ease like quickly or or significant ease as people people are hoping. I'm going to give two fun anecdotes just to show I can go both sides of this story. So I, I there's elements of where I I think we should really go ex-China in, in many more ways of taking steps at, at our firm to do, to offer more choices that way, to that give more ex-China options. And I could see that case of that, that it's really tricky to do, um, to be, you know, to, to with all this different geopolitical risk on the table today. Now, on a company level, I could give two examples where, you know, I could see both bullish and, and bearish cases. One, um, my mother-in-law was a huge consumer on T-Mill. <laughs> she is starting to get all sorts of deliveries. Timu is a division of one of the big tech stocks in China, Pinduoduo, PDD. Yeah. And they, you know, are now like rivaling Amazon. I mean, they are trying to like offer Amazon stuff at half the price. One of Jeff, our Twitter people that we follow, say just discovered this thing and got some deliveries and got the exact same thing for 50% off. It's like, well, yeah, my mother-in-law has been there for nine months. Where have you been? And uh, she's been buying and she bought the stock. To, was 
I'll tell you later. But she bought the stock to hedge all her purchases. So, you know, she's she and that she's a great example of if her and her friends are buying a lot, and she's a top-notch consumer. So she's buying and delivering a lot of goods. You can see, and now that's one of the stocks that's actually done quite well. It's risen the share, it's taken share from Alibaba and some of these others. Uh, and that's a traditional grocery. Now, some people are even worried on that one. Like, are they collecting all the data? On the U.S., there's going to be some data sensitivity, and there's still this outlying risk that it's growing so much and getting there's going to be a sensitivity of that. Then you have TikTok, which all the kids are on, and there's a lot of negative sentiment on TikTok. That you know, are they controlling the messages? And you hear Elon Musk. You know, Elon did this interview. We had um, Liza Toba from SCSP.ai on our show a while ago. We talked about the Elon interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin, where you know, he talked about when you think about just the world's population, where they are, if TikTok is spreading the messages that are resonating the most with the people on TikTok, where are the messages going to go? Mm-hmm. And it may not be anything nefarious, but the AI, AI algorithm is going to say there's a billion Muslims in the world. It's going to put a lot more anti-Semitic content than something else. And so, like, for our kids, I told my kids I don't want them on TikTok. And so, you know, there's elements of both of these things, and I actually t- said to Mike, if you want your phone, you, you either could choose your phone or you could choose TikTok. Which one do you want? And uh, so far, they're listening. But they they might still find ways, but it's it's not, you know, there's, there's elements of uh, tricky issues on both of those things. When you mentioned Elon, which makes me immediately start thinking of, of the other operation besides Twitter that he has a hand in it's tesla and you know one of the things that's been interesting about how depressed the chinese equity market is is byd produces more cars it is the number one ev manufacturer now again the three of us don't have a position in the name well i don't know maybe you guys have a position in the name i i don't um we don't know whether the the stock is going to go up or down but it's just intriguing because one of the things is is because the chinese state can strong arm and what they're going to do is put a lot of infrastructure for charging because they realize um that they want to get try to get an edge in this particular industry and so one of the things about what's starting to happen in the electric vehicle area is remember these batteries are extremely heavy and what it does is it does wear and tear on your tires and this was one of the this is one of the wraps on tesla this year is essentially okay when i got when i need to get this thing serviced it costs me x number of dollars but i got to change these tires every time i turn around because they're so heavy and it's it's actually one of the bull cases that they had been you know theorizing with respect to goodyear and that type of thing in recent years that they'd be able to sell more of these expensive tires but what you do is is you start thinking okay well if you have a country that has much more charging infrastructure then the ability of your battery to go long haul becomes less important. If there's a proverbial gas station everywhere you turn, a charging station. And what BYD is trying to do, because they have a lot, basically the entire um, stream, I mean, they have the battery infrastructure, is start to get away from lithium and make some of these, we call them like cheapo batteries with some of these other inputs. They're cheaper, it ends up weighing less, you don't get as much battery life out of it, but they are ostensibly the the leader there. And it's just kind of intriguing because look, I don't know if the stock is bullish, I, we don't it's, talk about it, but it's, it, the, the valuation of the company, which sells more than Tesla is something like what, one-tenth? The well, market Elon capital. also said in that same interview that nine of the 10 largest car companies in the world will be Chinese. That right. So he if if he's got the best cars, the next nine might be Chinese companies over wow. time. So like it, it's a fascinating dynamic. For 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 our listeners, first I think we have a very strict approval system uh, in terms of owning stocks. So everything we do does uh, get a compliance. Um, um, I usually don't own individual uh, companies, but BYD is a great example when. Um, China, you cannot completely write it off because China didn't really set out to dominate the car industry. It, it was uh, in the beginning, the government wants to have, because China for many, many years cannot find a way to produce a gas a company, a gas car to compete with other firms. So there was this new idea and the Chinese government putting a lot of uh, 
kind of a subsidy. Like if you if you buy these car, you will get you know subsidy. And then was kind of trying to see like, is there any possibility? And all these private companies literally, you know, pretty much figured it, the things themselves. And then suddenly you have this thing that China is actually leading technology or or at least, you know, top technology. So this is the example of Chinese companies still very entrepreneurial uh, and try to navigate the really difficult uh, thing. I think the thing with China also is that right now, I think uh, we are living in the U.S., we are used to if things are tough, the government comes in and then help around, right? In China, it's not, um, that's not the baseline. So right now, uh, many, the expectation of bailout is very low in China. So I think uh, many people here would say, wow, are people really not, you know, mad that the government doesn't come out and and then do something? Um, Actually, locally, the sentiment is not that negative. And um, that's another thing which, you know, is a little bit uh, different. And people are very negative, but definitely not as like anti-government negative as many people here, like kind of thing. And the third thing is that indeed, when I was in China last summer, you do see charging station available everywhere. Um, very convenient. It, you know, So the typical Chinese and also the government give some um, incentive, like in the old days, uh, there's a quota in terms of how many cars you can purchase if you live in Shanghai, uh, the kind of license, like you, you literally go get a lottery. But if it's an electric car, you get a, a, drive, a license for your car right away. So these incentives has ultimately helped these all, all of the private owned companies and Chinese government do acknowledge that if U.S. Um, in the competition with U.S. in China, they they have to, you know, stimulate the 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 private companies to be able to make a go. And you know, Pinduoduo is again, you know, they're so challenging domestically, and they found a way to really, in some way, almost beat uh, Baba domestically and internationally. I mean, Baba also has the international side. They have uh, AliExpress, but you know. We haven't heard about it, right? It has a similar business model with, uh, T, you know, uh, Timu. So again, um, I think right now it's the fundamentals of these companies are not necessarily that bad, which makes it really no cheap. But I think the sentiment or how do you evaluate uh, a company, uh, companies that's in a authoritarian country like what's the valuation that should be that is what people are debating the most my big question on timu um it has done well since since my mother-in-law has been been part of the story is <laughs> is they were now they they're clearly their market angles have worked they're acquiring a lot of customers or growth profiles which sent the stock up last we're off the charts but are they making money are they just are they just acquiring customers and spending a lot of money at a very, very discounted rate, or is it sustainable? How much of this will eat into Amazon? To me, is a very big question that I'm watching closely. I think it's one of the interesting, uh, interesting I, I think, competition points. I think they do make money. I can uh, give you guys a view of the prices since I also look at the, for the exact the same thing. Amazon price usually thirty percent more expensive than Timu, but Timu price is also 30, 40% more expensive than the exact same thing if you bought in China. So there's a lot of shipping costs, which goes directly to the spaces that Jeff hosted and shipping is, is about to be yet another inflation risk. And I mean, this is one of the things where you say, well, can this, what's going on through the Suez Canal, the things that are having to get rerouted around Africa, Jeff, you had this epic spaces, um, you yes. started with Jim Bianco on fixed income, talking about all of Jim's views and, and Jim's big views that we had on behind the markets to close the year was the 10 years going to gravitate towards five and a half, six percent over the longer run. This four percent people are getting too excited. He's been right to start the year for sure. Um, but it, it, he's he's been going all on this uh, Middle East issues with the Houthis firing missiles. What did you take from that? that spaces on all these shipping risks. Yeah, and and set it up with with the introduction which is the the deflationary force from China 
happening in tandem with all of this all in real time. Look, Chinese PPI is minus 2.7% year over year. And what did we just talk about for the last five or 10 minutes? Timu and cheap EVs and deflation in a major consumption good, an electric vehicle. Then what we have right now in real time, before you even go to the Suez, one of the things we were talking about as we had guys like John Conrad on there shipping people, because that's where Bianco was going with the space. We, we had him on there because we're running money at Wisdom Tree with Bianco. And, you know, right now down in Panama, the canal is at super low water levels. And one of the things that we may recall from during COVID was when that ship got grounded in the Panama Canal right at the worst possible time because we had all the supply chain uh, muck up and then, boom, can't get anything through Panama um, for what, 10 or 15 days at the time. Now, meantime, you had, if you, Jeremy, you know, Dr. Anaz Alhachi, he's a big oil guy, big strategist type. He's, um, he's a, he's a, he's kind of a wizard on this stuff. One of the things he was pointing out in terms of a risk here. And remember China's exporting all this deflation. And then now here you have the inflation coming from basically several different conflicts occurring in tandem in the Middle East, he's pointing out, look, you could have, if the Gazans are all going to leave, they would end up in Egypt. And that Egypt is in no position whatsoever right now because the currency is in the tank. It's generally an unstable state. And which basically a lot of the revenues that you have at the state level are from Suez passage, but nobody, nobody can go through the Suez. So it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. You have no prognostication by anyone um, that any of these conflicts are going to be ending anytime soon in the region. And so one of the big deals is you have to essentially just look, just picture your map of the world. You have to do uh, like a reverse Ferdinand Magellan. You have to go under, you have to go all the way down underneath Africa to come back up to get into Europe with your goods and whatever that may be, whether it's oil or whether it's, um, you know, uh, consumer goods from China or something like that. And so it's ending up driving up all of these shipping costs. And this is coming at the same time as, and this was pointed out, I think it was Conrad. Uh, was was talking about this on the call. This is coming in, in what three or four years after they just put all of the deep, deep environmental regulations on the bunker fuel for your dry bulk carrier, for example. Wherein, basically, the moral of the story back at the end of the of the last decade, and it still is. I mean, nothing changes with sulfur. Uh, the effect of sulfur on coral reefs was all this sulfur from our cruise lines and from our dry bulk carriers and from our regular old boats, that stuff was destroying the Great Barrier Reef, went the refrain. And then therefore they needed to go and change the oil content. They had to retrofit a ton of ships. So that adds to the cost. So it's really, really a bizarre situation because you got deflation coming from China, all of these maritime inflationary forces. I think the maritime stuff, I think somebody who's looking to do macro in 2024 should really, really be keeping a close eye on it. It's one of those underappreciated risks. Yeah, the two Twitter people, John Conrad was very good. We also had Sa yep. Sal Mercogliano, who's one of Jamie yeah. Rapp's favorites. So that Sal was also very interesting to follow on Twitter on these issues. I mean, they were talking about the insurance costs that are are spiking, and that because the, these the you know these ships can't get insurance, that's forcing them around. Um, and it and it's even less like that that people don't want to get their ships taken over their risk that. They can't get the, the the goods insured, and that's causing people to, to turn around. So that huge, interesting play. Now, Li Chen, tying it back to China, do you know whose ships are making it through when they show that they have an all-Chinese crew? China's not having any issues there. Really? Okay, well, I didn't know these militaries use as much. Um, sometimes I feel there's so much disinformation um, on social media. And for someone who doesn't really know much about the military, I kind of uh, haven't uh, paid attention. But again, I think here is where U.S. and China can is an area where U.S. and China can potentially work together. 
and uh, ultimately, but with the you know presidential election going on, it, I don't know. I I don't have a very good um handle. Do, do you think U.S. is more likely to work with China on solve this issue, which does impact the inflation, or less likely? Or I, I don't have a good read on this. Well, it is all inter. It, it feels like all a lot of these conflicts are interrelated. I mean, you have obviously the Russia-Ukraine dynamic. Um, you have the Middle East conflict and the 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 now the tensions with Iran, and then you've got North Korea, you've got China. All of them seem to be have some connecting threads, um, and and so. It, now, can you solve the Middle East? Can you get peace in the Middle East so that these Houthis stop firing missiles and that you don't have that issue? I and mean, that that is something we've been trying to solve forever. And oh. it, it doesn't seem like that is a short term dynamic, but it, it, it it's it's hard to see how these all things get get squared away um, now. And this stuff, affects, you know, the. Regional supply chain issues like that, that tends to affect Europe more than North America um, just because of the, the, the sheer proximity of the matter. And one of the things that's that's a little unnerving is we're all banking on inflation being tame and that the ECB would fall in line with the theory would go a Federal Reserve that is going to cut three times this year if the dot plots are believed, five or six times this year if the street is to believed. But you have a Several ECB members in the last week or two coming out and saying, no, no, we, we really don't intend on cutting at all. And you wonder whether or not we have, we're going to be back in some supply chain issue, maybe not as bad as during COVID, keeping some of these consumer-based um, CPI-type uh, measures elevated for the time being and then upsetting the apple cart on risk assets. I think it's something to at least be on our radars this year. Next, I'm going to tease out next week episode. We focused a lot on Asia, a little bit on the Middle East and the shipping costs. Uh, we've got the World Economic Forum going on right now. And some of the things I'm I'm watching is you got Javier Malay, who's the new president of Argentina, the very libertarian president of Argentina, very capitalist, um, focusing on that. And uh, as an emerging market, I, I find you know his election very interesting we're gonna have a deep dive on latin america and what's going on in argentina next week uh so that i'm just teasing out the show next week um for people who want to tune in for a little bit more of, of other interesting international opportunities we've talked so much about the global markets here um jeff maybe just some some thoughts on the u.s as as we think to what we're hearing i mean i think what you heard this week from the fed don't get so quick on rate cuts. Um, we've got strong data, retail sales strong. People were getting quite excited that these cuts were starting in March and, and, and coming fast and furious. After Governor Chris Waller spoke, they started lowering those probabilities. Um, you know, but our, one of our main themes has been broadening participation, going beyond mega cap tech, thinking about the value small caps because they were priced for a recession. There's a lower chance of recession with now the flexible mindset from the Fed. Um, what's anything changed to start the year for you? Do you still agree with that major theme of broadening participation? Yes, and you can see it in some of the flows. A lot of people trying to get away from from cap weighting, whereby you have say a third of your assets in these seven names. You can see it in things like the equal weighted five hundred last year. There was a lot of big flows. We sold a lot in the in a lot of the quality type met, uh, mandates, small and mid, not quite getting some love for most of the year. But then that rip roaring rally that started around Halloween started to get a little bit more love. And, and that's in, in terms of market internals, that is pretty healthy. One of the other things that's bullish for U.S. equities, we'll see if it ends up being, I guess, 13th time the charm. And when I looked back at all re-election years, as opposed to presidential years, presidential re-election years, what I found was I think it's 12 in a row. Didn't matter whether it was a Republican or a Democrat running for re-election, and it didn't matter whether that person won or lost. In other words, doesn't matter if you, the listener, hate Biden, hate Trump, love Biden, love Trump. The fact is, there's a president up for re-election, and whether or not he wins or loses, the last 12 times the stock market went up in those calendar years. The theory would be, as I think about it, 
Either A, when a president is an incumbent and stays in, that's the market rewarding the known quantity and they're happy to see the guy be put back in. When it's, a, when it's a, uh, an incumbent that is about ready to get tossed out to the curb, that's the market rallying in anticipation of the fresh blood that will seemingly change things. So maybe we don't even need to worry about who ends up being victorious this year. Maybe we just melt a little bit higher. We'll see. Yeah, some of the cycle seasonal trends show the first quarter, little weak. The last three quarters, the strongest in some of these seasonal presidential cycles in the fourth year of these cycles. Um, it also seems like a natural place where you got the NASDAQ bumping off those highs, sort of turn the year a little bit lower. Maybe you get some consolidation here as we kick off the year before you get some of those gains. But it, it's going to be a fascinating, a fascinating year. Geopolitics, where I think we're going from the Fed to talk about all these elections. Um, and, and sometimes that could be positive, sometimes it could be negative um, in terms of the sentiment of what's, what's happening in the discourse. But um, the world is an interesting spot at the moment, and so there's a lot of negativity. Hopefully, we get some candidates that bring some positivity to the conversations. Uh, closing thoughts from you, Lee Chen? Um, I think, uh, again, for China, um, it, it's it's really uh, how much, you know, you 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 really believe in China's technology competition versus the U.S., Ultimately, that's the only key. I know Taiwan is important. Uh, I do see U.S.-China. Uh, if you look at the statements you, U.S. and China released after the Taiwan election, even though it's not, you know, not necessarily China's uh, wanted the the party ones, uh, both sides were pretty restrained. So ultimately, U.S.-China, uh, how to work together. Um, try to be restrained for all the hotspots in the world. I On that, I am still on the positive side. And Jeff, closing thoughts from you. Sure. If you're looking for a tail risk or something that could upset the apple cart and you're saying, no, the re-election year thing, I don't, I don't fall in line with that. That's none of that theory is no good for me. We had an ugly, ugly print on the Empire State Manufacturing the other day. It came in, it just, it just plunged. It, it, it fell out of bed. That is something that has a pretty tight fit with a six to 18 month lag on S&P 500 earnings. Could that be the type of thing that gives us a punk year for 2024 earnings? Take a look at the chart if you're doing big macro. It's it's unnerving, Jeremy. Yeah, my friend Sam Rines writes a note for Corbu and wrote about that today and talked about an election season, maybe the soft survey data catches up with the sort of actual real data, which has been very strong. So there's this difference mm -hmm. between soft surveys and sentiment. And as you get closer in the election year, maybe the election gets those things to catch up, but you still have a strong economy. We'll we'll watch all that. Um, this has been fun conversation. Um, Lee Chen, Ren, you can follow her on Twitter to get her latest thoughts in China. I think she does some of the best commentary of what's going on there. Jeff Winninger, comments on everything, a lot of Japan at the moment, but a lot of economy, a lot of housing. Uh, you can also follow me at Jeremy D. Schwartz. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.